what we're trying to do is to look at the differences in the thermal properties of the soil and of the features that are on and below the ground. Uh, if you can imagine something simple like, say, a buried stone wall under the ground, that wall made of rock, right, is probably going to heat up and cool down at a different rate than the soil that it's in. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science, as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Ryan Watkins. And I'm Doug Lay. Today, in episode 89 of Parsing Science, we'll talk with Jesse Kasana from Dartmouth College about his research using multi-centered drones to collect data about a major Native American settlement that was reportedly encountered in 1601 by a Spanish conquistador in what's now southeastern Kansas. Here's Jesse Kasana. Hi, I'm Jesse Kasana. I'm a archaeology professor at Dartmouth College in uh, New Hampshire. I went to my undergraduate college at the University of Texas at Austin. The reason I chose that actually was because it was the one university I was accepted to that offered an archaeology major. So even in high school, I, I was excited and committed to the idea of becoming an archaeologist. But I didn't know at 17 that, that most archaeology in America is actually taught through departments of anthropology and that all of those other universities had plenty of archaeology. <laughs> it was just, it was just uh, you know, it's not the kind of thing that high school guidance counselors often uh, know a lot about. And it was in an era before the internet, uh, I was doing my best. Then I went directly on to graduate school at the University of Chicago. I was very excited about going there because I was mostly interested in the archaeology of the Middle East. And the University of Chicago is home to a place called the Oriental Institute that is the, the one of the world's leading centers for all things ancient Middle Eastern. So I, I did my PhD there. And uh, in that period is when I first got interested in remote sensing as a approach to archaeology. And then I moved on to a faculty position, my first one at the University of Arkansas in the Department of Anthropology. And I was there for about 11 years. And that is where I initially became interested in applications of technologies, especially ground-based geophysics or sort of low-altitude aerial remote sensing. And initially, I did that using things like kites and balloons. And I was an early adopter of drones as soon as kind of consumer grade drones became available about 10 years ago. So I also, when I was there, I learned a lot more about North American archaeology and sort of broadened my horizons a little bit, although I've continued to work in the Middle East mostly as sort of my main line uh, in terms of the work that I do. So I, I directed an archaeological project in Syria for several years up until the start of the war there. Then I, I did a, a big regional satellite imagery-based study looking at the effects of looting and site destruction that resulted because of that war. That went on for a couple of years and got a lot of media attention. As we'll hear more about later in the show, in order to investigate his southeastern Kansas site, Jesse's study analyzed data obtained from a variety of devices, including satellites and drones, as well as other remote sensing tools. One benefit of such technologies is that they allow for exploring the buried past without having to disrupt the land above that may now be in use for different purposes. Such is the case with this site, which has been dubbed the Country Club site because of a golf course that's built on top of part of it. 
So we began our conversation by asking Jesse to tell us more about the site's location, features, and earlier explorations of it. The site is located down in southeastern Kansas, just outside of the town of Arkansas City, on a tributary of the Arkansas River called the Walnut River. So right at the tributary between these two rivers, there is a cluster of about 20 archaeological sites that all date to about the same time period, between about 1400 and 1700 AD. The culture that it belongs to is sometimes called ancestral Wichita. So these are probably the ancestors of modern Wichita, but there's some controversy about exactly their affiliation or identity because, of course, in the archaeological record, we just have their artifacts to identify them by. The artifacts, though, are collectively similar in such a way that they're referred to as the Great Bend Aspect. That's the the local terminology that archaeologists use to describe this sort of common set of artifacts, stone tools, potsherds, things like that, building styles, and so forth, that have these sort of circular or circle-like earthwork features. Those are ditches that are dug into the ground, sometimes with a mound in the middle. And they were termed council circles by basically looters early in the 20th century. So people who would go to the sites and dig them up looking for artifacts, noticed these big round things and called them council circles. But what, in fact, they were used for remains a topic of debate among specialists. Uh, This site is one such site that belongs generally to the same archaeological culture that produced those large sites that were studied previously up in central Kansas. This site itself, it was originally discovered by archaeologists back in the 1930s, a guy named Waldo Weddell, who worked with the Smithsonian and did a lot of research in Kansas and was the first person to systematically excavate and study a lot of the larger council circle sites, also identified this large site called that he, that he called the Country Club site. It had a whole series of mounds that were mostly on the golf course itself. And they were either um, what are called middens or trash mounds, which are just like piles of refuse. Some of them, though, were probably burial mounds. So they'd be like places where important members of society would have been buried and then covered in dirt. There were also other traces of the history of human occupation there, including surface artifacts spread around and cash pits. These are like pits that were dug into the ground for the storage of food or for the disposal of refuse. And also a few indications of sort of house remains, a couple of which he tried to excavate. He only worked there for a little bit a little while, though, in the 1930s. But because of the location of the site, he speculated at the time about its importance. The first European expedition to the settlement was in 1541 by Spanish conquistadors who had heard that the town was rumored to possess gold. Despite finding none, the lure of the fabled place nonetheless led to further expeditions. So, in 1601, the conquistador Juan de Añate returned to the village, which he dubbed Etzenoa. Ryan and I were curious to learn how early archaeologists used records of these travels to determine the location of the site hundreds of years later. This same region of Kansas is the one that many scholars had believed to have been visited by Spanish conquistadors back in about 1601. And at that time, there are a number of historical records 
that were produced by the Spanish colonists led by this guy Juan de Onate, who, you know, is a kind of pretty controversial figure. He is credited with establishing the Spanish colony of New Mexico as a province and became its first governor, but he was also a kind of brutal leader who did a lot of terrible things. But he, one of the things that he did was to go on an expedition out into Kansas, or what's today Kansas. So there had been reports of a very rich city filled with gold somewhere up in that region. And there had been previous expeditions to find it, which had been unsuccessful. So, but anyway, in, uh, in 1601, he led an expedition himself up to search for these very rich cities. Uh, he describes in some detail in the travelogues of this expedition into Kansas, the route by which they went. And so they went on a river here, and then it met another river there. And based on those descriptions of the topography and the rivers, that is what led scholars to conclude that the intersection of the Arkansas and Walnut Rivers was probably the site of this settlement that Wando Onate eventually arrived at. That's like not universally held as the fact, though, like associating a description of a location that's recorded in a historic record with an actual archaeological site is not a straightforward process. Because, you know, unless you like see a big sign that says, welcome to Etzanoa, you know, population, whatever, like there's not oftentimes a, a clear and direct line between this site and that ancient place name. In any case, this seemed like a good candidate for the place that the Onyate expedition encountered. So this is just one example of the many reasons why there is a question mark in the title of this paper. <laughs> a council circle at Etzanoa, the question mark refers both to, is that thing a council circle? Is that thing Etzanoa? Is Etzanoa a real place? Along with publicly available laser scanning and satellite imagery, Jesse's survey used high-resolution thermal, near-infrared, and visible light imagery acquired from drones to digitally prospect the archaeological features of Etzanoa. Technologies such as these allow archaeologists exploration of what's buried without disrupting the land above. So we asked Jesse to introduce us to several of the tools used today in modern archaeology. People have speculated since the 70s that a thermal image of an archaeological site could be used to reveal features on and below the ground surface. But it just hasn't been possible to really execute that until the sort of appearance of these drones that are very easy to fly and easy to control and reliable, and these super small, lightweight, uncooled thermal cameras, and the software that enables us to process this very complex imagery. And so we needed all three of those things to happen. Like in the in the seventies, the first experiments with this were done, and they had a, a thermal camera, but it was very low resolution. It had to be carried on a plane. That plane had to fly extremely slowly, very close to the ground at night, right? So you you need a pilot who's really not risk averse. And the data they collected was like a little meh. So archaeology has like very specific needs in terms of optimizing remote sensing, and the drones enable us to sort of make that a reality. But I think one big thing that could see some some improvements are in sort of ground-based geophysical instruments. Uh, right now, there's sort of a suite of primarily three, maybe four different uh, instruments that archaeologists use 
to try to see under the ground in the same way that I'm trying to do with the drone, but you do it with an instrument that you like strap onto yourself or push it and carry on a cart and then kind of go back and forth like a lawnmower back and forth and back and forth. So we use uh, magnetic radiometry to look at differences in sort of the earth's magnetic field or differences in the magnetic properties of the soil. Uh, we use ground penetrating radar to sort of see differences in the way the radar waves deflect off things underground and electrical resistivity to look at the difference in resistance of the soil to the passage of electricity. So those are like three main instruments. But the thing is that the basic technologies behind those instruments, like the way that we deploy them, how they work, our survey strategies have not really changed much since like the early 90s. And this is one of the main bottlenecks with any of those tools, which are, in theory, quite powerful ways of seeing what's under the ground remotely. You know, is it takes a really long time to collect them. You know, if if you have a team of three or four really experienced people and you really know what you're doing and you're working on an archaeological site that's a golf course, you could maybe cover a hectare in a day with magnetic radiometry, which is the fastest of them. And that is like, and that is backbreaking work. Like you're going to lose a lot of weight and uh, like <laughs> look real tan by the end of it. But we can cover with the drones, like a square kilometer in a day with just one person. It's such a powerful scaling upwards in terms of our ability to see what's under the ground. Jesse's findings point towards major investments in the construction of large-scale, ritual, elite, or defensive structures, lending support to the interpretation of the cluster of the Great Bend Aspect sites as a single, sprawling population center, as well as demonstrating the potential for thermal and multispectral surveys to reveal archaeological landscape features in the Great Plains and beyond. As he's taken his drones around the globe to carry out such archaeological surveys, Ryan and I asked him to describe the various drones he uses in his research. In our lab, we have a fleet of different drones that are sort of designed for different purposes. Those run from the smallest, lightweight, consumer-grade drones like the DJI Mavic, for example. You can buy at Best Buy or the Apple Store or whatever, you know. So, But those are very useful. They've got really nice cameras in them. They're good for just taking pretty pictures. And you can also perform some pretty good mapping operations with even a small drone like that. So the reason we use larger or different drones is primarily when we want to deploy other kinds of sensors that are not just color camera. And so for those, we use a, a few different platforms. In this paper that we just published, we were using the now discontinued 3DR Solo, which is also designed as a small quadcopter. So it, it would fit in a big backpack. You know, it's like a, a relatively small thing, weighs a few pounds. And it can carry a little sensor if you wanted. So we have equipped the thermal camera on like the, the DJI Phantom, but it's a little harder. The 3DR Solo has the advantage of being able to sort of take it apart. You can put any kind of sensor or camera on it that you want, and that camera will then be fully integrated into the drone's hardware and software so that the images have like GPS positions encoded on them so you know where they were taken from, which is important in map making. And you can also get telemetry, meaning that you can see the images that are being collected by the drone as it's collecting them on a remote control 
But it became increasingly difficult to deploy it, though, because um, the company sort of discontinued it and the software was no longer being supported or updated. And so it was pretty buggy. And so we've recently upgraded to DJI's version of what they call an enterprise-grade drone, which is the the Matrice series. So they have this like larger, more expensive series of drones that are equipped and designed to take different kinds of sensors on them. So the the larger drones we fly are considerably more expensive. You know, they cost so you know your basic consumer grade drone you can probably buy for you know under a thousand dollars, whereas these bigger drones are going to be like in the fifteen to twenty thousand range, right? You know, they, but they they have a lot of capabilities. They're a lot bigger, more annoying to travel with because they have large cases. They tend to use a lot more battery power, so that's a big annoyance. But they can lift a lot more weight, and it's easier to outfit them with other sensors. Ancient earthworks, such as old walls or structures, can often be recognized in thermal and infrared imagery, even if they have no visible topographic expression on the surface. Jesse and his team use both of these technologies in Kansas, and we'll hear how after this short break. Thousands of conversations about scholarly content happen online every day. At Altmetric, we track a range of sources to capture and collate this activity, helping you to monitor and report on the attention surrounding the research you care about. Do you know who's talking about your research? For a free, visually engaging and informative view of the online activity surrounding your scholarly content, visit altmetric.com slash products. Now back to passing science. Here again is Jesse Kasana. In this particular project, what we're trying to do is, is use these different kinds of sensors mounted on drones to sort of see what is on and below the ground surface. And if you just take a color picture of the ground or make a, a map of the ground using color images, you know, you'll see the ground as it looks today. But there are a lot of features that just won't be visible for various reasons. So a lot of my work over the past few years has been dedicated to exploring the possibilities of using thermal imagery. Uh, and so in this case, what we're trying to do is to look at the differences in the thermal properties of the soil and of the features that are on and below the ground. If you can imagine something simple like, say, a buried stone wall under the ground, that wall made of rock right, is probably going to heat up and cool down at a different rate than the soil that it's in. And that same principle goes for many different kinds of things that archaeologists are interested in finding. So something like a pit or a ditch, if it's filled with soil that is of a different consistency than the soil it's dug into, which is almost always the case, it will probably retain water differently, like it might be more or less porous. And those differences in water retention are going to affect a lot the rate at which it will heat up and cool down over the course of a diurnal cycle, like over the course of a day. And so the idea with aerial thermography right, is to try to take a, a thermal image of the ground at a point when the differences in the temperature or the emission of thermal radiation from the ground is pronounced. Everything's going to heat up and cool down, heat up and cool down over the course of days. And there are times in that process when two things are, will always be the same temperature, right? And other times when they'll be uh, very different. So based on a lot of experimentation, we have learned, first of all, that trying to do this work during any daylight hours is pretty pointless. And that is because the sun produces such a huge amount of 
thermal energy that it drowns out any emitted thermal energy from the ground pretty much. So all you see is reflection from the sun's rays off the ground. But if you wait until nighttime after the sun has set, the ground is still then emitting thermal radiation. We think of it as heat, and heat is somehow different from light. But really what this is is simply a, a long wavelength of light. It is like the whole ground is glowing, except in this part of the spectrum that our eyes can't actually see. And it's glowing at different strengths, right? And so what we're trying to do is, is map those differences. And that's what the thermal imaging is all about. And it has proven a, a powerful tool, but it, it's also one that's very fickle. In addition to thermal and infrared, Jesse's drones also shot near-infrared images of the Atsinoa site. Though available since the 1930s for film-based imaging, it hasn't been widely used in archaeology until the emergence of digital imaging. Up next, Jesse describes his use of near-infrared imagery in his search for Atsinoa. The other uh, sensor that we were using in this survey is a multispectral camera. So it takes four different bands. So it basically takes four different images of the ground, each one just of a particular wavelength of light. So it takes a picture that is green, it takes a picture that is red, it takes one that is a little bit past red, and then it takes one that is near infrared. So that image that is near infrared, we can't see with our naked eyes, right? But the camera records it. And the reason that that's a useful bit of information is that any kind of green vegetation tends to reflect near-infrared very strongly. It's just a sort of natural process of plants with chlorophyll. Remote sensing scientists have used this fact for decades as a way of measuring plant health. Because if you were to look at a ratio between a near-infrared and a red band of light, uh, you can produce a new image from it, which is called a normalized differential vegetation index. And that new image will give you like a, a relative sense of vegetation health based on the ratio between how much red and near-infrared light the plant is reflecting. And that can be a useful thing archaeologically because if you have a, a near-infrared image of sufficiently high resolution of the ground, then you can see subtle differences in vegetation health. Like So in this case, we have an archaeological site that's covered in grass, right? Because it's a cow pasture, or it would work equally well on a golf course. And if you just look at a color image of the ground, well, all the grass is green, right? But in fact, some of that grass is a little more healthy, a little more robust than other parts of the grass. And those differences will be evident in a near-infrared image in a way that they're not in visible light. And, that, and that'll give you an indication of what's under the ground. Because in the same way that things will have different thermal properties, those same things like retaining water or being having like a stone wall or whatever it is, the thing that's underground is going to affect the, the health of vegetation above it. Piloting drones to take systematic and detailed images of a large geographical space is a far cry from the traditional archetype of an archaeologist digging for bones in the desert or uncovering artifacts in an Egyptian pyramid. So when learning about our upcoming interview with Jesse, my nine-year-old son asked why Jesse doesn't just sit in the car while his drones do all the work. This got Doug and I wondering about what kind of practical impediments affect this approach to research. When the drone is in flight, you, it is absolutely essential that the pilot in command, whoever is piloting the drone, and the spotter keep eyes on it the whole time. That's a sort of a requirement. That means we have to stand outside watching it and making sure that because sometimes things go wrong you know there can be issues that require us to 
get the drone. You know, I have crashed them many times and things go wrong all the time. Like if you're going to fly drones, you're going to crash drones, uh, especially doing these kinds of sort of extreme surveys. It is a very strange way to do archaeology, right? Because normally, like an archaeological project, we have big groups of people. We go in the field for weeks at a time. We work all day in the sun, and then we go home and sleep. And in this case, I just show up for two days, and we have to go in the middle of the night. And the drone flights themselves are pretty quick, but it's a lot of waiting. So we're just, we go out there and we get all set up and then we just have to wait for hours. So we're just like sitting around, it's freezing cold. There's coyotes all over the place. This particular site, I was really nervous because like, you feel like you're really out there somewhere in the you know Great Plains and it's pitch black, like you can't see a thing around you. and you can hear lots of coyotes kind of howling around you. And you're like, huh, well, let's just get this done quick. <laughs> so yeah, the actual drone flights, uh, they're pretty fast. So to do an individual set of surveys to cover the whole ranch that we were mapping in this project, it would take about 45 minutes or so. So we're flying the whole time. And we, our typical strategy is to do a series of surveys through a night because we often don't know like which time of night is going to be the best for getting the imagery. Sometimes it might be, say, right after sunset. Sometimes it might be just before sunrise. In this case, it turned out the flight around midnight was the best one. Uh, one thing I learned, for example, is that if you are in a place where dew forms on the ground, that's terrible. So you must get there before the dew point. Because once dew is there, that's all you see is just dew. Archaeology today is a precise science, often involving a variety of highly advanced technologies. But, like with most disciplines, it hasn't always been so. Since Jesse's pushing his discipline in the use of precision tools for revealing past cultures, Rand and I closed out our conversation by asking what words of advice he might have for other emerging researchers, regardless of what field or discipline their science might be in. Archaeologists have a, a particular interest in doing this kind of very high resolution, very tightly controlled remote sensing-based surveys of large landscapes. And that is not something, in my experience, that is widely done. But there are many things about the approach that we are taking that I think are really broadly applicable to many other disciplines. And sometimes when talking with colleagues in other fields, I'm sort of shocked at their naivete regarding just the basic sensor technology, how to deploy it, what it can tell you. So yeah, I think that that's certainly an area where there'll be a lot of interest. A, a lot of my work regionally, not in this specific paper or with the drones, but I've used a lot of uh, historic satellite imagery and the reason that that old stuff is so valuable is because it sort of preserves a picture of the landscape that predates a lot of modern land use change. So the development of intensive industrial agriculture, expanding cities, flooding of reservoirs, all those things uh, really dramatically impact the preservation or survival of archaeological sites and features the kind of thing that we're looking for. Like even in this study, like the circular earthwork, the reason that we're able to see things like that in the place where we surveyed is because that particular plot of land was used almost entirely as a uh, 
cattle ranch throughout the 20th century, right? So it it was never subjected to deep, intensive, mechanized plowing, which would probably have destroyed these things completely, whereas almost the rest of the terrain around it has been. So this this old aerial photography and satellite imagery really is a very powerful resource for mapping archaeological sites and features that in many cases no longer exist today. So it is sort of shocking to me, though, that those same resources are less commonly deployed in other fields. Like, So archaeologists love them and use the imagery or other things like that a lot, but other people seem to use it a lot less. And in fact, like here in the United States, we have a, a huge archive of aerial photographs covering the entire continental United States that date to the 1920s and 30s. But almost none of that archive is currently publicly available. It is kept underground on slowly deteriorating acetate film strips in a in a bunker in Lenexa, Kansas. I mean, it's curated by the National Archives, but they don't have a, a, a system for people to access it that is workable. You have to go to the National Archives map room in College Park, Maryland and request a canister and wait two days. And then when you get it, like you can't scan it. But those things have a lot of power for research outside of archaeology. Like one of our PhD students who just graduated last year here used the same imagery that I would be using for archaeology, but instead used it to map the changing size of lakes in Greenland, which is a key indicator of climate change. So these other aerial sources are, you know, they're the oldest source of global high-resolution imagery we have. And so they could play a really important role in a whole range of studies of changing environment or, you know, in geography and other fields. So I think that that's like a, an exciting area that an archaeologically driven initiative could really impact. That was Jesse Cassana discussing his article, A Council Circle at Etsanoa, multi-sensor drone survey at an ancestral Wichita settlement in southeastern Kansas, which he published on October 24th, 2020, along with Elise Jacoby Loyer, Austin Chad Hill, and Donald Blakesley in the journal American Antiquity. You'll find a link to their article at parsingscience.org e89, along with transcripts, bonus audio clips, and other materials that we discussed during the episode. You probably already know about Parsing Science's website and our toll-free message line, 1-844-EXPLORE-IT. But did you know that we also tweet news about the latest developments in science, including many brought to our attention by listeners like you? You can follow us at Parsing Science. And the next time you spot a science story that fascinates you, let us know. We might just feature the study's researchers in a future episode. Next time in episode 90 of Parsing Science, we'll talk with Eric Torgny about his research into historic pet cemeteries and how they can reveal our evolving relationship with animals, from beloved pets to valued family members, as well as our increasing belief in animal afterlives. By recording the epitaphs and the words that people use and the ways that they record the gravestones, you can reconstruct both the relationship that people had with animals during their lifetime and the relationship that they hope to have or they expect to have in an afterlife or after death. We hope that you'll join us again.